being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 40 imperial japan part 10 spikelopedia part 3 the many identities of nisho inoue part 4 or part 4 the jailbird imperial advisor kuromaku and skibe Today I'm recording from the outer grounds of the Imperial Palace. When we left Nisho Inoue, he had just been sentenced to life in prison for attempting to assassinate upwards of 20 of the top leaders of the country. He served his time in Kosuke Prison in Tokyo. Like many prisons, Kosuke Prison employed its inmates in menial labor. Specifically, they had inmates folding and assembling envelopes. Inoue quickly realized that the repetitive nature of folding envelopes allowed him to enter samadhi, which was said to be a higher state of consciousness that can be cultivated through spiritual practice. Also, while he was in prison, Inoue joined the prison haiku club, though he was discouraged at his lack of skill. Inoue was never a far-right theorist or writer, though he did spend some time thinking about these things in prison. Inoue reflected on the differences between the political left and right in Japan. As he saw it, the key difference between these two was the emperor of Japan. Both groups wanted social reform. Both groups may even agree on a lot of the same obstacles standing in their path, but they would never arrive at the same location precisely due to the emperor. When I first read Inoue's analysis, I thought it sounded stupid, but then, as I thought about it, I think he's actually right in a way. I mean, let's get into the rest of Inoue's life to see why. While Inoue was in prison, the Niniroku Jiken, or February 26th incident, occurred. And while I wouldn't put that much stock in this comparison, it is kind of like if the beer hall push was actually serious. The February 26th incident was the largest military insurrection in Japanese history. It was launched by the aforementioned Koroha, the Imperial Way Faction, against the Control Faction. The rebelling officers attempted to pull off a hard coup d'etat. Their goal was the Showa Restoration, just like Inoue wanted. The similarities were not lost on the February 26 plotters. They actually included Free Inoue as one of their goals. And of course we know that Inoue had been in communication with them prior to launching his attacks. The rebelling officers killed several high-ranking leaders. They took over the army ministry and Tokyo PD headquarters, but ultimately the whole thing failed due to Emperor Hirohito's opposition. Like, Emperor Hirohito ordered the rebellion to be put down. And when a group is specifically dedicated to having the emperor seize power, and he says no, like, there's not a lot of places you can go from there, right? By the way, interestingly enough, a lot of the tension in this whole situation was something I haven't exactly outlined. That basically the Imperial Way faction was also kind of partial to Hirohito's brother, Prince Chichibu. And there was kind of a song and dance kind of a interplay, like a subtext, that they kind of wished that Chichibu would come to power. And so they probably wouldn't have dethroned Hirohito. They wanted Hirohito to be who they, the ideal that they built up in their heads. But 
There is this element of Hirohito engaging but keeping his distance from the Imperial Way faction for this very reason. And, of course, there's a huge amount of nuance and ins and outs that I'm leaving out. But, very interesting, right? Long story short, if you try to pull off a truly serious coup d'etat and fail, it's kind of like bluffing in poker. Like, you're pretty much done. And... (laughs) This spelled the end for the Imperial Way faction, which is not to say that they were not still influential. They absolutely were. And, as maybe you've guessed, the Japanese state tried to be as lenient as they could with these rebels so as to not provoke further incidents. The Imperial Way faction was absolutely put down in terms of seizing power, but many of their ideas were recycled back into the body politic. The Imperial Way faction, like, definitely lost, but many of their ideas of mystical allegiance to the Emperor were not to disappear so quickly. This incident didn't just spell the end for the Imperial Way faction. In some ways, it was truly like the coronation or the cementing of power for the control faction. If for no other reason than because they forced the Emperor to choose, he chose. He chose the control faction. This meant that the faction that wanted war with Western Europe and America was now in control, rather than the faction that would have preferred war with China and or the Soviet Union. In a lot of ways, this basically set up World War II, arguably. And, again for reference, Yukio Mishima's amazingly morbid story, Patriotism, takes place in the context of the February 26th incident. It's still good if you don't understand the historical context, I would argue. Like, when I first read it, I didn't know about the February 26th incident. I was quite young also. But it's all the more interesting when you keep that in mind. It's pretty short. Very interesting. I do recommend it. And, of course, I am, as always, massively oversimplifying things. Like... Honestly, like, the February 26th incident deserves, like, a season-length treatment itself. But I'm focused on Inoue, right? So let's get back to him, still in prison. While Inoue was serving time, his elderly father was visited by none other than Mitsuru Toyama. And Toyama, through Inoue's dad, delivered Inoue a message. The message was about how long Inoue would actually have to serve before receiving clemency. Toyama told his father that Inoue would have to serve three more years. Granted, this was already after several years. That the message came through Toyama himself shows how important Inoue was to certain powers that be. Sometime later, Inoue's father passed away, and Inoue was granted the almost completely unprecedented permission to attend his father's funeral and then return to prison. While in prison, Inoue saw the arrival of many of the convicted February 26th rebels to Kosuke prison. He was able to give them some degree of Zen Buddhist training while they were there. Inoue also developed an interest in prison reform. Kind of like how every, like, every upper class man who goes to prison anywhere in the world for a time gets really into, like, prison reform. Especially if they're, like, white collar or... Lord help us for ideological crimes. That's not to mock the idea of prison reform, which is generally always like a good thing, right? But more interestingly, to me at least, 
Tenko was taking place at the prison. Now, for people who don't remember what Tenko is, we talked about it in episode 31. That was the term for changing directions. Tenko was being practiced in Manchukuo when we were talking about it, though they also practiced it elsewhere. Historically, Tenko was almost always applied against leftists. And, like we talked about then, this was a lot of your lunch pail 9 to 5 type brainwashing. All beatings, imprisonment, social pressure, none of your fancy electroshock, experimental drugs, and tape loops, right? But, reportedly, Tenko was quite effective anyway, which sort of underscores how much more is probably possible when you stack those more sophisticated techniques on top of it, right? Anyway, Inoue was not subjected to Tenko. No, the warden placed him in charge of running Tenko at the prison. So there are probably a couple reasons for this. First of all, we know Inoue was, among all his other identities, a spy. And we know that he had a trusted and privileged position at the prison. Second, Zen Buddhist priests in general were highly valued by the Kempeitai for their ability to convince prisoners undergoing Tenko to change their ways. Inoue was not necessarily the guy doing the beatings and drilling that Tenko generally consisted of. No, his role was a lot more managerial. He was literally placed, being a prisoner himself, he was placed on a parole board to determine when prisoners undergoing Tenko were ready to be released. These were men who had violated the Public Order Preservation Act of 1925. I think we mentioned it. It's literally about thought crimes. So, in no way being in that position, it's a staggering privilege for a man sentenced to life in prison for multiple high-profile assassinations. Like, imagine being a Japanese communist who is in prison for thought crimes and you're forced to go through a bunch of brainwashing sessions, and then a guy like Inoue is in charge of judging your sincerity. It's Kafka-esque. Reportedly, Inoue was actually a hard-ass on these parole boards, and he never approved any Tenko candidates for release. The most notable inmate that he dealt with in this capacity would have been Sagan Tanaka, who is a very, very interesting guy who I might have to discuss in the future. Sagan Tanaka was the one-time chairman of the Japanese Communist Party Central Committee, and he was not arrested on thought crimes. He was actually arrested for carrying out terrorist attacks against the police. Tanaka underwent Tenko and issued a Tenko statement in 1933, but he was still considered ideologically suspect, so Inoue did not approve his release. Assuming Tanaka was not a police agent the whole time, then Tenko apparently worked because Tanaka was ideologically cured. He later became a far-right businessman. He was the head of a construction company, which I wouldn't deign to insult every Japanese construction company, but a large number of them had Yakuza ties, like pretty strong ones, right? And especially Tanaka did. And he eventually became an international fixer who specifically played a pretty big role in the Japanese oil industry. One of the other high-profile prisoners that Inoue interacted with was a Korean anarchist whose Japanese name was Bokuretsu and whose Korean name was Park Yol. I've seen it also spelled Pakyol. Park was a political activist who was associated with a group called the Outlaws. 
He did activist work within the oppressed Korean community in Japan. He was arrested after the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923, which supposedly Inoue predicted, right? Park was arrested uh, basically because the earthquake provoked widespread anti-Korean pogroms. In the quasi-apocalyptic setting of after the Great Earthquake, there were false rumors that Koreans were setting fires, raping and looting, and poisoning wells, and raising an army, which is weirdly similar to the rumors that float around whenever there were, like, say, anti-Semitic pogroms of, like, Imperial Russia, or, you know, other pogroms elsewhere, right? Anyway, Park was arrested for his protection during these pogroms, which might have very literally been true because Japanese mobs did in fact kill upwards of 6,000 Koreans during this period. This caused the Japanese government to set up camps for the Korean Japanese, which there's the fascist mindset for you, right? But then, after, like, to justify the camps, the government needed to justify their actions, so they put Park and his common-law wife, Kaneko Fumiko, on trial for thought crimes. Through coercive interrogation and torture, they got both to admit that at one time they thought about the possibility of assassinating Emperor Hirohito, which of course is a crime, so they got life in prison. Park's wife, a common-law wife, Kaneko, she killed herself, but Park was still imprisoned when Inoue was serving his life sentence. We have one of the poems that Kaneko wrote before she died. One's limbs may not be free, and yet, if one has but the will to die, death is freedom. In my opinion, it sounds like she was perhaps a better poet than Nisho Inoue. They actually made a movie about Park uh, in South Korea, I believe, called Anarchist from Colony, which is like kind of an awkward title, but apparently it's pretty good. I haven't seen it yet, but I would like to. Now, to his credit, supposedly, Inoue was concerned with Park's ongoing mistreatment by prison guards, and he chastised them for lacking compassion and for the guards failing to understand the august mind of the emperor. As a side note, Park was later released from prison after Japan's defeat. He later went on to form a Korean residence association in Japan. Eventually, he returned to Korea. From there, it's not super clear what happened to him. One story has him being taken prisoner by communist forces, and then Park choosing to convert to communism, which certainly sounds possible. But according to Sagan Tanaka, the far-right Yakuza-affiliated political fixer, who we should not necessarily trust on this, and I looked it up, as far as I can tell, he is the source like for this claim. I couldn't find a lot of sources on what happened to Park other than just Tanaka, but Tanaka says that Park was accused of being a South Korean spy and shot in the DPRK in 1974. I have major doubts as to whether that's true, simply because it's only Tanaka saying it. So maybe we'll never know. Maybe some listeners uh, know some sources. I would love to find out. Now, after this point, Nisho Inoue received two different sentence reductions that lowered his conviction from life imprisonment down
down to 15 years, and a 15-year sentence at that time meant that he would have been eligible for parole after having served one-third of your sentence, which he had. So Inoue was released on parole on October 17th, 1940. The occasion was to honor the mythical 2,600th anniversary of the founding of the Japanese state. You would think that facing a life sentence and then getting out in five years would be enough. But it wasn't. On the emperor's birthday, Inoue received a unprecedented special pardon which rescinded Inoue's conviction altogether. It was the first of its kind in Japanese penal history, which meant that Inoue effectively and literally had no criminal record whatsoever. Let's keep that in mind, and we will return to that a little bit later. So, Inoue, he's out of prison. He's a free man. Now, just like with Alfred Krupp, I think it's very instructive to look at what the first day of freedom looks like for a guy like Nisho Inoue. Let's go through it step by step. First, he was picked up from prison by his wife and daughter, who were accompanied by his lawyer and a literal army of ultra-nationalists in a convoy of 20 cars. They went on a pilgrimage to the Shinto Daijingu Shrine in central Tokyo. The Daijingu Shrine, by the way, enshrines the sun goddess Amaratsu, who is said to be the progenitor of the imperial family. Then Inoue went through a series of purification ceremonies to ritually cleanse himself with salt and water. The final purification ceremony involved drinking a cup of cold sake such as they use in traditional wedding ceremonies. After drinking it, Inoue said, well, now I am married to the kami of Japan and the national polity. The kami, of course, being the gods, right? Then Inoue dressed in a traditional kimono with his family crest and walked to the outer grounds of the imperial palace. He kneeled in the gravel, bowed deeply, and made a vow of obeisance. Then he went to the Meiji shrine. Then Inoue visited Mitsuru Toyama to pay his respects. Inoue said to Toyama, from today onward, I am going to call you father. In my late father's will, he told me to regard you as my father and serve you as if I were serving him. Then, they exchanged sake cups, that time-honored tradition that the Yakuza do, though not exclusively a Yakuza thing, though in this case specifically, it was very much related. This is also significant because it's one of the very few times Toyama was known to drink alcohol. Now that Inoue was free, he had to ask himself, what now? How would he make a living? Despite having received and spent truly massive amounts of money, he really didn't have a source of income or even any real skills per se. An honest man in that situation probably would have died poor. From here, though, Inoue does the most characteristic thing, in my opinion. He asked Toyama to introduce him to someone who needed a political advisor. And so Toyama introduced him to a rich patron, but not just anyone. 
Toyama introduced him to Gotaro Ogawa, who was a politician, and, especially relevant to our story, a railway minister. Ogawa then introduced Inoue to the then-current prime minister, Prince Fumimaro Konoe. Inoue became Prince Konoe's live-in advisor and confidant. He won Prince Konoe over by giving him hard yet vaguely still flattering reality checks. Now this is very interesting because I've heard other people describe Prince Konoe, the Prime Minister, as like, I wouldn't say puppet, but like not truly in charge of the government, right? Like the generals and the cabinet arguably had a lot more control than Konoe. That's not to say that, like, Prince Konoe was, like, completely powerless, but, like, he was not arguably running the country in the way that, like, we would normally think the Prime Minister runs the country, I guess you could say. Now, Inoue later claimed that Konoe and Hirohito both wanted peace, but Hideki Tojo just pushed them into war, which that interpretation is not what I would call true or accurate, but it does reflect what certain sectors of Japanese society would later claim that was like the line after Japan's defeat in World War II, especially talking to like the Americans, right? Just dump everything on Tojo. Domestically, Inoue and Konoe did not agree on everything, and it seems that Konoe used Inoue's perspective, like if we're being like charitable to Konoe and saying he wasn't just getting scammed, it seemed that Konoe used Inoue's perspective to understand the defeated but still powerful Imperial Wei faction's perspective. And when you look at it that way, it feels less like Inoue's getting one over and a little bit more like he's providing a real service to Konoe. And Konoe did want to leverage what remained of the Imperial Wei faction in order to suppress, or at least like control, the control faction. Inoue, of course, wanted the Emperor to just lead everything, right? Inoue's view was that Konoe failed to control the control faction. In his words, Prince Konoe's fatal flaw was his lack of courage to resolutely repulse evil. Which, maybe that's true, but, I'm, you know, not in the sense that he means, I believe. Later on, at working as Konoe's advisor, and live-in advisor, Inoue actually foiled an assassination attempt against Konoe. I'm sure partially because Inoue did not want his meal ticket getting ventilated, but also perhaps for reasons that we will get into a little bit later. In August 1941, Inoue was actually present at a meeting between Prime Minister Prince Fumimaro Konoe and Mitsuru Toyama, along with the right-wing Shinto scholar that we mentioned earlier, Imazumi Sadasuke, and at this meeting, Konoe told them, I will start war with the United States at the beginning of November 1941. This means Inoue was actually one of the very first people to know that Japan was planning to attack the United States. That said, I think that the specifics of the Pearl Harbor attack were separately being planned by Tojo. I don't think Konoe knew the specifics. Very interesting stuff. But we know that Tojo would not formally propose war until October 15th in a cabinet meeting. So 
the idea that Inoue knew that war was coming with the U.S., he was like one of the very first guys to know. Now, Inoue did not have that much to do during World War II. He was not inside the government necessarily. But he was Konoe's advisor. He proposed a very, very, very interesting thing to Prince Konoe once it became clear that they might lose the war. Inoue proposed to create what he called the Himorogi movement. The name refers to the sacred offerings made to Shinto deities. But as Inoue defined it, the Himorogi movement would be a national network of social activists who would be ready to launch a legal domestic reform movement to maintain power. The mechanisms by which they would do this would be through private schools and martial arts halls across the country. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Folks, we are talking about Operation Gladio right here in Japan, and one based on Japan's methods of exporting their espionage activities abroad through martial arts and private schools. Remember that Imperial Japan used martial arts halls as vectors for spreading both soft power and doing espionage. They did that in Korea, Manchuria, and China. The reason why Inoue was already planning this was because he had heard the defeat he had heard about the defeat at Midway before the general public did, which they tried to sort of cover it up for the public, or they didn't make it very clear that Midway happened in Japan. And this is also notable because it means Inoue knew what was at that time top secret military information. Now, the Himorogi movement didn't pan out, at least not as Inoue planned it, and at least not under Inoue's control though they did pretty much the same thing to maintain power. This is interesting because it means Inoue was not as trusted as maybe he would have liked. It's kind of like how Inoue didn't get to be in charge of the February 26th incident either. Very interesting, right? Now for a little peek into Inoue's hustle, Inoue met with Konoe on March 9th, 1945. And as Inoue prophesied, as in religiously predicted, Inoue believed that there would be a large air raid on Tokyo. Just hours later, wouldn't you know it, there was a large air raid on Tokyo, which killed 83,000 people. Inoue explains this as a, like a important religious prophecy, though there is some indication that he just had the means to get advance warning, you know, that the air raids were coming, right? He only predicted it, like, a few hours ahead of time. After Japan's defeat, Prince Konoe learned that he was very likely going to be arrested as a Class A war criminal, so he drank poison and killed himself. Another meal ticket up in smoke. In winter of 1945, Inoue was summoned to the Daiichi Insurance Building which was occupied by the general headquarters of the Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, or SCAP. Inoue was wanted for questioning, he was not placed under arrest, and his first uh, interrogation, I guess you could say, was by a British naval lieutenant. We actually have a transcript of this questioning, so I will read excerpts from it. This was British Naval Lieutenant Parsons, who said, you're Nisho Inoue, correct? Inoue said, yes, I am. Parsons said, Mr. Inoue, I didn't request your appearance today in order to find out what you did before and during the war. 
We already know what you did. We know you were not only an ultra-right-wing nationalist, but the leader of a band of terrorists. In fact, it is a matter of common knowledge the world over that it was you who started World War II. There's no point denying it. Inoue responded, asking, I'd like to ask a question, may I? Parson said, go ahead. Inoue said, just now you said that I was a right-wing leader. Now, I may be a little bit clumsy, but I nevertheless regard myself as a human being. From where you sit, do I look like a bird? Parson said, Mr. No Inoue, no one has called you a bird. Inoue said, Well, didn't you just call me a right-wing leader? Look, when I spread my arms, I don't have a right wing, much less a left. But um Now, Parsons was just the first of a whole long series of interrogations. Inoue was sent to the International Tribunal where he would go through 27 more interrogations. And Inoue joked that it was kind of like when the heads of two different martial arts halls are fighting. And in order to challenge the master of a martial arts hall, you have to fight every single person in a lower rank for that other hall before fighting the master, the opposing master, right? Now, reportedly, Inoue was pretty good at pissing off these mostly American prosecutors. Inoue found that, as a general rule, British people were almost impossibly polite, and um, the Americans were rude. Inoue attempted to explain the imperial system to these foreigners, and specifically the love of the emperor. He compared Japan to an extended family, and that therefore true national body politics were not wanted or needed in Japan. He also got to expound endlessly on how the entire war was the fault of the control faction, and that it was not according to the wishes of the Emperor or the Imperial Way faction. Which, as we've established, there was some truth that the Imperial Way faction did not want to fight the United States, or Britain, at least not at that time. So that sort of holds up, and then with the Emperor, there's enough ambiguity that sometimes they could get away with that argument, right? Among the different U.S. and British prosecutors, Inoue became known as the genius of sophistry. In one of these transcripts, Inoue says, I want you to indict me, which is pretty funny. Inoue could, Inoue could be that glib because through a quirk of history, he was uniquely innocent among that guilty milieu. He, like, literally didn't do anything during World War II. According to Inoue, he ascertains the price that it took to avoid receiving a sentence from Scap. He said that the bribe was around 10,000 to 20,000 yen. I don't know if it's true, but I would not be surprised. They didn't exactly end up prosecuting a huge amount of people anyway. Scap did not prosecute Inoue, but they did impose a lifelong ban on him running running for or holding public office. Interestingly, Inoue met William Flood Webb, who was Chief Justice for the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, though it is not entirely clear why he met him. Whenever a meeting like that takes place, I would not say it's a sure thing that Inoue was snitching, but it is well within the realm of possibility.
This episode is coming out after my premium episodes with Boyd Beaver, where we talk about the the man Alexander Guterma, who was a bizarre con man who was tied to just about everything. But I would like to discuss someone connected to Inoue who has almost the same upbringing, who instead of becoming a con man, became a journalist. Wink. Let's talk about Mark Gain, a.k.a. Mark Julius Ginsburg. He was born in Manchuria in 1909, so not very many years off from Guterma being born in 1915. Gain was born to Russian Jewish parents. Again, same as Guterma. I think Boyd Beaver arguably proves this, like beyond a shadow of a doubt, in my opinion. Gain then went and attended school in Vladivostok and Shanghai which partially matches some of Guterma's movements, too. Then Gain went to the United States, which Guterma eventually also did. Though Gain went, I think, before World War II, Guterma went after. In fact, as Boyd Beaver discovered, Guterma's stepmother studied dentistry in China and Russia, and Mark Gain's mother also was a dentist. It is entirely probable, entirely likely in my opinion, that Guterma's mother might have known Mark Gaines' mother, as they were both female Russian Jewish dentists in Manchuria around the same time. It's entirely possible, in fact, that Gain and Guterma knew each other, though there's really no, like, their paths don't intersect after, like, World War II, as far as I know. Leaving Guterma aside, Gain went to Pomona College in California. He majored in political science. Which, in one of my premium episodes, and I must plug my Patreon, right? We know that political science is one of the most spooked up majors. We know that partially through, like, observation, right? But also because of the political scientist and spy, Alfred de Grazia, who almost exhaustively documents it. Then, Gain went to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, and he became a journalist. Neither of these things dispel the possibility that he was a spy, right? Though we don't have, like, proof yet. And if you're wondering, this is relevant to Inoue, so allow me. Please indulge me. Gain was a reporter in Shanghai in Japan from around, like, 1934 
through 1945, though after a certain point, Gain was just in China. Like, after hostilities broke out, he was no longer in Japan, right? Gain did a lot of reporting on the Chinese Civil War, like, before and after the World War. And after the war, Gain went to Japan to report on its occupation and reconstruction. He wrote a book on it called Japan Diary. Later, he reported on the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Gain was also one of the very first Western journalists allowed back into China. He witnessed and wrote about the Cultural Revolution, for example. One of the few Westerners, I think, who witnessed the Cultural Revolution himself. Now, Gain's reporting appeared all over, like we're talking Time Magazine, New York Times, The Nation, especially the Toronto Star, which was like his main employer for like 30 years, and notably a Far Eastern affairs journal called Amerasia. More on Amerasia in a second. I bring all of this up because Mark Gain met Nisho Inoue, and they had a very unique experience. While Inoue was also being endlessly interrogated, by British and American prosecutors. Gain, for some reason, was in one of these prosecutors' offices, and he got to speak with Inoue in an, I guess, unofficial capacity. He offered to take Inoue on a speaking tour of the United States and to help him publish a book in English, kind of like the books that Kodama and Sasakawa ended up writing, right? I, and as a side note, I own, I believe, I mean, it's not that impressive, but like, I own first edition, like, books for Kodama and Sasakawa's English books. I Was Defeated and Sugomo Diary. They are probably not worth reading unless you are really into this stuff, but. So additionally, Gain seemed very, very interested in learning from Inoue about the Mitogaku which is the Mito School, which is a school of historical and Shinto studies based in Mito, Japan. This dated back to the Tokugawa period. The Mito School was arguably one of the key intellectual traditions which pushed the Sono-doi movement. And again, I can't speak Japanese, you know, I'm, I'm probably butchering some of this, but this movement, directly translated, meant revere the emperor, expel the foreign barbarians. And this movement helped lead to the Meiji Restoration, like way back in the day, right? So other than being interested in history, why was Gain so interested in Inoue and the Mito region? Because Mito was considered part of the nationalist belt in the country, and because a large number of the political assassins came from Mito. Gain chose to stay in Mito to study it, and in fact, he quotes a geisha madam saying, at one time, so many killers came from this district that no outsiders would marry our girls. With Inoue's assistance, Mark Gain studied Mito, and he wrote, it was not by accident that political terrorism sprang up here, for Mito has always been the cradle of extreme nationalism, and Mito Gaku, or the Mito School of Nationalist Thought, left an inerasable shadow on Japanese history. Now, there's two ways of reading Mark Gaines' actions. 
you could say this is just the behavior of a journalist who, like someone who is curious about extremist Japan and the origins of ultra-nationalism, or you could be like me, a paranoiac who sees spies everywhere and who hears about a Western journalist with a very weird background who seems unduly interested in political assassins and think perhaps there's an ulterior motive at play. And I would normally say that you should decide, dear listener, but there's a curveball waiting, and I'm just going to say it. Mark Gain was actually arrested for being a spy during the Amerasia spy case. Amerasia, the Far Eastern Affairs Journal that Mark Gain wrote for, it was founded by Frederick Vanderbilt Field. Now, I don't expect anyone to just know who that is, per se, but some of the, my longtime Jimmy Fallon Gong fans on Twitter may remember my Marilyn Monroe thread, where I go through all the weird things in Marilyn Monroe's life. In the section of the Twitter thread where I talk about her time in Mexico, I talk about the weird American expat scene in Mexico City, where there were a lot of Reds who basically left because of, like, McCarthyism for the most part. And one of the guys floating around in that expat, like, red scene <laughs> when Marilyn Monroe was there was the same guy, Frederick Vanderbilt Field, who is probably one of the best examples of the Silver Spoon communist, short of, say, I don't know, maybe Trotsky or, like, half the Dirtbag podcasters. Take your pick. So, Amerasia, started by a Red Vanderbilt, edited by Philip Jaffe, who was tight with Earl Browder of the CPUSA, again with the Dirtbag podcast connection. The <laughs> Amerasia was staffed by a bunch of former or current communists and at least one alleged Soviet agent. The whole affair broke when an OSS agent was reading an edition of Amerasia in his free time, and he noticed that an article on Thailand sounded exactly like a report that he had written for the OSS. He realized what happened, that Amerasia was publishing confidential OSS reports, basically. So this freaked the OSS out, and they broke into the Amerasia offices, and they found hundreds of OSS, State Department, and naval documents. The OSS looped the FBI in, and they built a case which found that the U.S. government was leaking like a sieve, and they figured that there were several leaks, one of which was said to be Mark Gain. Along with other suspects, the feds bugged Gain's house and wiretapped his phone in order to build their case. Gain was arrested on June 6, 1945, along with five others, and they formally raided the Amerasia offices. When they raided the offices, they found 1,700 classified State Department, Naval, OSS, and Office of War Information documents. Theoretically, the Department of Justice could have gone for an indictment under the Espionage Act, which would have been very, very bad for the defendants. But instead, they knocked it down to the charge being unauthorized possession and transmittal of government documents because they could not prove that the Amerasia people actually handed any of this information over to enemies of the state. They were publishing it. 
which is very sly and intelligent, but also very weird, right? I mean, it was probably intended for, like, the Soviets, but it is technically kind of, like, covered in free speech if you publish it. The problem also was that the feds broke all kinds of laws in conducting the case. So they were forced to drop charges against Mark Gain and several others. And then the Department of Justice sought a deal because of the aforementioned OSS and FBI both breaking in without warrants, um, the illegal wiretaps of literally everyone involved. So like, at the end of the day, I think two guys pled guilty and they paid fines. No one went to jail and the Amerasia spy case was wrapped up. Now, I'm sure it'll get old eventually, but I love to bitch about Wikipedia. Mark Gaines page quotes the New York Times saying that Mark Gain was, quote, quickly vindicated in the courts, which is not at all how I would characterize it. Like, Mark Gain and others were doing espionage using Amerasia as cover, and they seem to have gotten away with it due to federal incompetence. But incompetence of the feds is not always what it seems. By the way, Joe McCarthy would very often reference the Amerasia case as the Cold War and the Second Red Scare heated up, right? Either way, Mark Gain got hounded out of the country, and that's why he settled in Canada, working at the Toronto Star. So yes, when all of this is considered... Gain's curiosity about Inoue's network of assassins and the weirdly high number of killers coming out of Mito, that sort of hits different, you know? And, by the way, the Amerasia spy case occurred in 1945. The Inoue-Gain conversation took place in 1946. So, what on earth was Mark Gain doing, having been prosecuted, granted the charges were dropped, having been charged with espionage for basically stealing and publishing confidential documents. Like, what was he doing in the SCAP building in the first place? What, like, why were the prosecutors hanging out with him? What exactly is going on? Was Gain perhaps infiltrating a spy ring for other people? Did he, like, play ball enough to not be in trouble? Like... What on earth is going on here? It just raises so many questions, right? Now, in 1954, Nisho Inoue, without the help of Mark Gain, wrote his memoirs, Ichinin Isatsu, or One Person Kills One Person. A lot of the information in these episodes comes from that memoir, right? Inoue would also lecture at various Zen temples. In 1954, and for reference, Inoue was 68 at the time, he and a bunch of other ultra-nationalists formed the Gokokudan, or the National Protection Corps. They also formed, at the same time, its subsidiary, the National Protection Youth Corps. The purpose of these organizations was to help push social reform and, quote, end the despotism of the rich and powerful. For context, and I will speak at length about this in future episodes, by 1950, Scap, the Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, General MacArthur, he pushed land reform through in Japan. 
This allowed three million peasants to acquire land for the first time. This, in conjunction with the 1945 law allowing trade unions for the first time in Japanese history, and then additional laws strengthening that in 1947 and 1949, meant that organized labor in Japan was stronger than it had ever been. Enter the National Protection Corps, which was mainly a strike-breaking body. Yes, just like in the past, and yes, just like in other countries. The main players were Yoshio Kodama, I think he was more involved in running it, Sasakawa, more involved in funding it. I've mentioned Kodama before, I will definitely talk about him in the future. I may not have mentioned Sasakawa yet, but I definitely will cover him as well. Probably the best way to introduce him, and this is like the little juicy bit that everyone latches onto. But he famously said, I am the world's richest fascist. Now, Inoue was head of the organization, the National Protection Corps, for a number of years, though it was not safe, though it is safe to assume that he was not in charge of it in the most meaningful sense, and I will elaborate. But either way, the police, the Japanese police, classified the National Protection Corps as Boryokudon, or a violent organized crime group. Very similar to a Yakuza clan, because that's literally what it was. I mean, not literally, but like, effectively, right? Also, it is very interesting, but in this period of time, the tail end of his life, Inoue met Nobusuke Kishi, the monster of the Showa era, a class A war criminal. Also happens to be the maternal grandfather of Shinzo Abe. When Inoue met Kishi, he was not yet, but soon to be the prime minister of Japan. We don't know what they discussed, it was said or hinted to be state secrets from the Hideki Tojo era. This underscores Inoue's ongoing relevance. Inoue also made quasi-official, and by quasi-official I mean it was quasi-official for the Japanese government, he made quasi-official visits to Indonesia where he met Mohamed Hatta. No, not Mohamed Atta. <laughs> I mean Hatta with an H. Uh, the the proclamator. <laughs> um, at the time, I think he was Indonesian vice president, but later he would become the prime minister. And Inoue, there were like plans for Inoue to be living in Indonesia as sort of like an unofficial or quasi-official ambassador. But Inoue got diabetes and decided to retire instead. At the end of his life, he abandoned his wife and built a house for himself and his geisha mistress. He was a whoremongering lech, possibly his true identity. Skibe to the end. By the way, some people think that the English word skeevy comes from British and American sailors hearing Japanese women shouting skibe at them. Also interesting to note that it was an insulting derogatory term for Japanese people like among, I think, more of like the British, until it eventually died out. To this day, you can see a life-sized bronze statue of Nisho Inoue at the entrance to the Risho Gokokudan, the Zen Buddhist temple in Orai. Let's talk about what we can learn from a case like Nisho Inoue's. We saw 
how Inoue came from the background you would expect for an ultra-nationalist, which is to say he was petit bourgeois. We saw how Inoue was literally a spy or agent of someone or something pretty much from at least the day he went to Manchuria on, and in my opinion, maybe other than the most obviously self-serving actions, you're at least safe to hypothesize that nearly every major action he took in his life may have been to further some orders or ends, right? Whether we're talking overt espionage, running casinos, all his business dealings. In my opinion, this also extends to his religious practice, like his religious enthusiasm, maybe even his dreams and visions. Like, despite being involved in the Zen Buddhist milieu, he was never actually in any sect, bureaucracy, or system, and he was somewhat outside of their influence. And he actually instrumentalized Zen Buddhism for about the most extreme application possible, political terrorism. During World War II and after, Inoue was known as a Kuromaku, which is a term that came from Kabuki theater, which means black curtains, but it's effectively like the English term fixer or kingmaker. It refers to someone behind the throne, hidden from view, who makes things happen. Almost a requirement for the job, a political fixer doesn't keep notes, so it can often be very hard to understand how uniquely important fixers are, in Japan and in other countries. And yes, there were definitely more important fixers than Inoue, like Toyama, Kodama, Sasakawa, a bunch of other guys. But Inoue was always probably more of an agent than, like, a force on his own anyway, in my opinion. In my opinion, the best way to understand what Inoue was truly about was to revisit the incident right after World War II, where the British naval officer accused him of starting World War II. Now, the Blood Oath Corps incident was in 1932, so at first glance this seems patently absurd, right? But, but, like we talked about in episode 39, the Blood Oath Corps incident allowed the emperor and the military to cut the power of the purse from Taisho democracy, thereby removing any democratic barriers to the military clique in Japan who then went on a warpath that led across China, basically, and then also to direct conflict with the United States. Inoue's actions did give them pretext to end democratic control over the military. In a very real sense, if indirect, he did actually cause World War II, at least in the Pacific, obviously, right? So, for everything, for his entire life, who was Nisho Inoue working for? What were his true aims? Kui bono, who benefits? It's hiding in plain sight. Sometimes the best hiding place is the most obvious one. And sometimes the best disguise is the worst disguise. Nisho Inoue was working for the emperor, including his spying, including his crimes, including his religious scams, especially his political terrorism, and also his later work as a political advisor and organized crime boss. All of it was under the emperor's orders, though almost certainly not in a direct sense. 
to like truly, truly explain this, I would have had to have gone into Emperor Hirohito too, but suffice to say that a lot of Westerners and even some Japanese misunderstand the true nature of the Emperor. Emperor Hirohito in this period of time was far wealthier than any of the other Zaibatsu, though very few people ever frame it that way. The Tenno Zaibatsu, which is to say the Imperial Zaibatsu, was massively wealthy. They were the richest Zaibatsu in the country. And that's separate from any hypothetical yet very real looted gold and treasure that we talked about in episodes 30, 31, and 32. Any time the ultranationalists talked about breaking the backs of the Zaibatsu and the financial interests running Japan in favor of the emperor, that is the height of irony, because the emperor already had the lion's share of the wealth in the country, by every metric, by land, financial portfolios, political influence, cultural influence, any way you can measure wealth, the emperor was in the lead, by far. In fact, a more conspiratorial-minded person might view the ultra-nationalists as like an antibody to keep in check the powers that might rival the emperors. And it certainly would be interesting if any of the ultra-nationalists, say, started killing the emperor's key rivals, right? Oh, right, that is exactly what Inoue did, right. Two things would be needed to strengthen this hypothesis. First, there ought to be examples in world history where similar things have occurred. Like, perhaps, maybe the Okrana, the Tsarist secret police. Like, maybe if political terrorism for decades was secretly run by the secret police and they chose targets based on their opposition to the Tsar over any tangible political goals. That certainly would be an interesting example if that happened, right? Second, there would need to be evidence to suggest collusion between the emperor and the ultra-nationalists. Like, there would have to be, you know, some sign that maybe Inoue was receiving something for his service to the emperor, like maybe like a completely unprecedented pardon for Inoue's crimes, bizarre, anomalously cushy jobs that just appeared without him really trying or needing to do anything. You know, there would need to be evidence like that. This is just a theory, but it's pretty well fleshed out. We might, in fact, even know who was conveying messages from the Emperor to Inoue. Or, more realistically, it probably went to Toyama and Kodama and some of the other guys, then to Inoue. The guy that probably did this was Emperor Hirohito's cousin, the Marquis Tokugawa Yoshichika. Due to his noble status, he could meet with the emperor outside of the official time-consuming royal protocols. And also, therefore, not recorded, right? They could and did meet several times a week, for years on end, in the imperial palace gardens and laboratory, because they were both botany enthusiasts. To strengthen this hypothesis, we would need to see if this marquis, this cousin, were involved with any ultra-nationalist groups. And in fact, we do have evidence of that. The Marquis donated between 200,000 to 500,000 to fund a coup in 1931. 
He was also involved with the February 26th incident, and at no point was he prosecuted for his actions in either. We know that the Marquis and Inoue met at least once, and there is evidence to suggest that they met many more times than the one time that we have. To quote the scholar Brian Dyson Victoria, could this be the connection between the ultra-nationalists and the throne? Circumstantial evidence strongly suggests it, but frustratingly, we lack conclusive evidence. Unquote. Victoria, being an academic scholar, he does not say the emperor was behind Inoue's actions. He points in that direction. Like we've said, though, because I'm not in academia, well, in the context of this podcast, right? Wink. I'm saying it, though. The emperor was behind Inoue's actions. Just be aware that there is a disconnect between the academic burden of proof and a paranoic podcaster's insistence when I say Emperor Hirohito was directing high-level assassinations and funding ultranationalist violence to maintain power. Let me say it again. Emperor Hirohito was directing high-level assassinations and funding ultranationalist violence to maintain power. Maybe just one more time. Emperor Hirohito was directing high-level assassinations and funding ultranationalist violence to maintain power. It's kind of like how the British monarchs run the drug trade, right? Wink. And lest you think I'm overstating the case just a little bit, let's look at the case of Hitoshi Motoshima, a member of the LDP, which is to say the Liberal Democratic Party of Japan. We will definitely get into the LDP, but they were the center-right political party that the U.S. and Japanese establishment propped up, and they basically ran the country for many decades, right? Anyway, Motoshima, he was in this party. He was in the LDP. He was the mayor of Nagasaki. In 1988, during a city council meeting, and occasioned by the news of Emperor Hirohito's failing health, Motoshima was asked if he thought that the emperor bore any degree of responsibility for the Asia-Pacific War, right? The term for, like, World War II plus the conflicts in China, etc. Motoshima said, If I look at the descriptions in Japanese and foreign histories and reflect on my experiences in the military, in the educational training of soldiers, in that regard, I think the emperor has war responsibility. Unquote. This caused a media firestorm in Japan. Motoshima refused to retract his comments, which I don't even think is like truly that fiery. Like, has responsibility for the war. Like, that seems like pretty straightforward to me. Anyway, in 1990, Motoshima was shot in the chest at City Hall. By the way, if you look at coverage of this incident in the U.S., some people say that Motoshima was shot by a, quote, right-wing youth, unquote. As if you chalk that up to, like, youthful zeal and indiscretion or something. But no, the shooter was 40 years old, Taijiri Kasumi, and he was the leader of an ultra-nationalist patriotic group, like a small one called the Sane Thinkers School, which had ties to the Yakuza, as many of these ultra-nationalist groups do. At the end of the day, 
the people who own the world are always ready to use violence. If, to quote Nisho Inoue, politics are conducted improperly, unquote, which of course they deign to define themselves. If people start doing politics improperly, which generally translates to good wages and a social safety net, much less, God help us, any sort of socialism, they will use violence. Oh, also, if you think that the current emperor of Japan is just a figurehead, just like in Britain, well, I have some real bad news for you. Four sources today, of course, I used Brian Dyson, Victoria's books. I used Inoue's book. I used Kodama's book. I used Mark Gaines' book, Japan Diary. I also used the Amerasia Spy Case book by Harvey Clare. A lot of other books I probably haven't mentioned, but for like deep context or whatever. For like general context. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. I need to be on my way to Port Arthur, China. See you next week, and God bless.